This podcast is brought to you by Oh My Audiobooks, where the pleasure is all yours. This is Love Notes with Julie and Jonathan. Hey everyone, this is Julie. And this is Jonathan, and this is Love Notes, where we talk to your favorite romance authors about how romantic shit is. That's that's so right. <laughs> uh, Julie Hutz, my my compatriot, my friend, my heartbeat. How are you? What's going on? I haven't seen you in uh, well over a, a week. week since we got back from Polygon. <laughs> Usually we go months and months, but actually you just saw me. So you should be sick of me, actually. Right no, now. no way. I didn't get nearly enough. I, I felt like the weekend, I felt like a polycon in DC. And for everybody who was there and came by to the table and said hello or came to see us on our panel, thank you so much. It was great to see you as always. Uh, but it blew by. Yeah, it really did. I mean, it went quick. It went quick. I've said that signings are kind of like, um, they remind me of my wedding. Insofar as I know that I was there, but I can't tell you what happened. Because you know? so many things happen, maybe, right? Yeah, exa- I think that's right. And, and, and you know, it's also just uh, a whirlwind. And uh, and by the time it's over, it's like I, I start to conflate people. You know what I mean? I start to uh, feel like, oh, remember when that one lady came over and she was so nice. And she said, uh, I loved such and such book. And then... I realized, oh no, that was like three different people and I've just melded them all into one person in my head. That's um, like me and I'm like, remember when we were in Scotland together? And oh, yeah. no, we were Who? in San Francisco. Who's that? Oh, that was Lauren, Lauren Blakely. Yeah, you were like, yeah, and I was in Edinburgh. And she was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I've never been to Edinburgh. And you're like, yeah, oh. Yeah, no, that's okay, not where that happened, Julie. Remember when we were in the Ritz Carlton in Scotland and she's like, no, that was a holiday in bathroom in San Francisco. um yeah it does and 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 i I, we as a team have a little bit of a break because we're not back at an event until august in dallas at uh book bonanza but you are back on the east coast again when soon right june so i actually have a little break it's nice right and so tell everybody if they don't know that event oh it's um... probably yeah it's author the girls are back in town um hosted by taryn fisher so it's kind of a smaller, more intimate signing, and I believe it's in Richmond, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I think it's sold out. But usually, you know, you can buy tickets. People can't go, right? Like they bought their tickets last year when they went on sale. And right. life happens in, in a year. And so probably a lot of people are not going to be able to go. So if you ever want to get into a signing that is sold out, you just start looking like a couple of months before um, the event. And usually there's people selling tickets in there in that group on Facebook. So I don't know if anybody wants to go to girls are back in town, but um, that's, if you did, that's how you get tickets if they're sold out. Yeah. And it, that should be theoretically, like you said, it's smaller so that you might actually get a chance to get a little bit closer, a few more minutes with some of your favorite authors if they're there and, if you can get a ticket. Yeah. Um, I think there's only like 45 or 50 authors compared to like a polycon where I, I don't know how many, but it's well over a hundred. Oh yeah. Most, most definitely. And did you get a chance? Cause we, there were two levels of the hotel where signings were going on and we were in this huge room downstairs. Did you get a chance to go upstairs and see that space? I did. I went up there to talk to, um, an author that I met that I, I really wanted to get a book from. So I went up there and got a book from her. And you, because it was, it was just bananas because it was actually a, a, the physical space upstairs was smaller and you could really feel like the sheer amount of people teeming and pulsing in the space. I mean, yeah, see, I didn't go up there when people were there. I went up before, so oh, I didn't oh. even see it when, when people were in there. Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, Jennifer L. Armantrout, who, friend of the show, been on the show, wonderful person. We should give a shout out to her again, too, for th- inviting us, for having yeah. us on the panel, for everything she's done. I, I When I went up and had a chance to meet her face to face, I was like, I looked around at the event and I was like, look, at, goddamn, Jennifer Armantrout, look what you did. 
you know, like by herself, she made this fucking thing happen. And it's really impressive. I mean, yeah, she, this is a huge event. It was a huge event for sure. But, you know, it was well organized and I think everybody got to see the authors that they wanted to see. So. Yeah, I felt really, I was, I was thrilled to be there. And we had a great panel on our very first day, first panel up bright and early Friday morning, uh, that we were there with Christina Lauren and, uh, Becca and Krista Ritchie, who we just loved. And, uh, so look forward to the future, uh, conversations with them because, uh, we asked both of those teams if they would be interested in being on the show. And, uh, Uh, this podcast. And they said, yes. So we will have them on um, today's uh, conversation coming up in just a few minutes uh, was with Julie's dear friend, Rain Miller, um, Miller. which we will talk more about in a minute. But um, before we jump into that, let's do the thing we do where we ask, uh, get a question from everyone who has listened. Thank you as ever for posting your questions. Please continue to do so. Um, This one I like. For two reasons. One, it's a good question. And two, there's a compliment in it. So um, I like that. So Sharon says, one of the strengths of your stories are the wonderfully human characters that take over your reader's head and become real. I could just leave it there and just leave it as a compliment and not actually get to the question, but I will ask anyway. Uh, Does it feel strange to you that readers talk about your characters like they are real people? And has a reader ever become angry with you? because your character didn't act like he or she wanted. Hmm. Okay. First one, oddly, no, I don't think it's strange. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I probably you feel should. That way as a fan. Yeah, well, but you I think, feel that way about characters. Yeah. I feel that way about characters. So to me, I don't think it's weird that they, they act like these are real people because for me, most of them are real too. I don't know. Maybe that is weird. I just I, never thought of it that way. I think it's important. I think you have to feel like they're I, you, because we have to care about them and the reader will care if you care. So I, I, I get that part. Um, has, has anyone ever said to you, I hate the way this character did this or the way this character behaved or. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten that before, but um, you know, it's, it's uh, I'm God in my world, right? Like I get to make right. all those choices. <laughs> well, that's a that was going to be my question. Do have the characters ever done something that you? Because I know it's happened for me a few times, and I feel like well, you and me, it's it's built into the cake, right? It's baked in the cake because uh, I can take something some direction that you're not expecting, and so we just have to be adaptable. Yeah. But when you're when you're writing on your own, has a character ever done some shit, and you've looked at it and gone like, holy shit, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I think I do that every single book. Yeah. I think yeah. every single book they, there's at one point because I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just, that's, I think that's normal too. I think that's normal. I think most authors would say that as well. I agree. And I think the trick, right, is to not judge that behavior. If the character wants to do something, even if it's not something you would want them to do, you just kind of go, well, that's them. Sometimes it's like, I know, it's me, not really them. Right. Mm. And then you're like, mm-hmm. Oh no. Yeah. That's not going to work. Right. Um, but when you get the really good idea, yeah, that's something else. Yeah. Yeah. Does it ever make you mad? Are you ever like, fuck you? I don't know. Brick or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Brick. <laughs> Sometimes if it means I have to write more then I'm like, <laughs> man, <laughs> <laughs> this is totally going to require a whole nother chapter. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, I love you right, so much. Though? Oh, I love you so much. Oh my God. That's incredible. It's true though, right? Like it you can got this be. plan in your head and you're like, no, I don't want to write another chapter. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I mean that, yeah, I get it. And also if you're on a deadline or something, that makes right. it particularly hard. But uh, That's good stuff. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, thank you, Sharon, for the question. Uh, so we have to now shift gears quickly and say, what's up to Oh My Audiobooks? Without Oh My Audiobooks, you would not be listening to this podcast right now. So a big thank you to Oh My Audiobooks and coming soon from Oh My Audiobooks. If you have been itching for, uh, for some very steamy erotica, see what I did there? Erotica. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, our good friends at Oh My Audiobooks are going to help scratch your itch with T.L. Smith's Red Hot Cavalier. Welcome to the world of Crimson Elite. Crimson Elite is the most exclusive sex club in the world. And enter Creed, the most perfect man who's as cavalier as they come. Cold, dismissive. I'm saying guys are real dick. And Alicia, a firecracker who just wants to be lit. Boom, Alicia. Featuring Teddy Hamilton and Mackenzie Cartwright and releasing on April 9th. If you do not already have a membership at Audible, sign up today to get your free 30-day trial because Cavalier is available for pre-order now. Um, Have you ever been to uh, I think I know the answer to this, but have you ever been a to sex a sex club? club? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I have this, um, I have this reader who lives in Denver and every once in a while she's like, Hey, that invitation to the sex club is still open. If you're interested. <laughs> because there is one that you sort of loosely based the turning club on, right? Um, not one that I know of. No, I just kind of made it up. Oh, you made it up. But then I think, I think that yeah, she messaged article. me. Right, she messaged right. me and she was like, Hey, did you, um, did you like go visit this club in Denver? Cause it's totally sounds like turning club. And I'm like, no, I did not go to the sex club, but um, she's like, Hey, I'm a member. You can come anytime you want. <laughs> I mean, eat, I, I'll, shit, I'll go. I, and know. every once in a while she's like, Hey, that, that invitation is still open. They are. I, I have been, I've been to a few and they are, uh, and, and full disclosure, just as a, a voyeur, right? Like just as a tourist, I have just because I'm a clean freak. That's really the reason because I have a germaphobic thing, but so, but I have been in, in an observational, uh, capacity and they are so fucking weird. Did you go to that really, um, weird one in LA that all the stars were going to or something? The the fancy one in Beverly Hills. I guess I, there were articles because I remember doing research and finding the articles about that place. Yeah. No comment. No comment. <laughs> but, uh, that's a yes. They are fucking, um, they're strange and they're not like years and years ago. I dated, um, a woman who was uh, an exotic dancer and, um, I spent a lot of time at what are colloquially known as strip clubs. And, um, those are like a very different vibe because I don't know if uh, any women have been to like a, a male strip club. Like I've been to female strip clubs too, where the guy dancers are there and it's like a really fun time and everyone's having a good time. And you go to like a male strip club and it's so fucking depressing. I mean, yeah, it really everybody's is. like, no. Yeah. It's dark. And, di- and so the, the sex clubs are a little more like the, um, the, the female strip clubs, like a chip and I don't know what, what the popular ones are now, but uh, with male dancers, because everyone's there to like, just have a good time and it's freewheeling and it's a lot of fun. And then suddenly, you know, like someone's crying and you hear a bottle break and someone's getting stabbed. And I mean, like, you know, because, <laughs> because they're intense and there's, you know, the, the booze drug part of it makes it like dangerous. If I'm being honest, like that's what's da- the sexy part. Is so sexy. hold on. This sucks yeah. club had, had alcohol and drugs. Uh, I've been to a couple that have had such, yeah. And I know that some of them are straight dry, but the other thing you got to remember is that a lot of people who show up at these clubs are already high, you know, even if it's not there, they show up ready to party. So, um, it's, uh, I don't know. Also, frankly, I'm old. Like I don't care anymore. Yeah. When I was a kid, I thought it was cool. And now I'm just like, yeah. Um, all right. We will answer one more quick question and then uh, jump into our conversation with Rain Miller. Um, and I think this one actually builds nicely off of what we were just talking about and the previous question about have readers ever become angry with your characters? Tara wants to know, have you ever had hate mail or a scary stalker? Um, I have had a scary stalker, but not related to writing. And that was a long time ago. But hate mail... Um, no, I mean, I, I did get one kind of nasty message recently, but I was for with the most you. Part, I was with yeah. you when you got that. Yeah. Um, so she apologized by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, but no, most of the time people leave me alone. I think, yeah. I think I have a vibe about me that says go away. 
Uh, you I can turn think, it on. You can turn it I on. I think that translates to the internet because no, I really do not get hate mail. Yeah, it's loud. I, it's interesting. I feel like recently I've seen more of a surge in it, though, just in that author group that we're both a member of and a couple of other places. And even on one author's uh, public Facebook page, she posted something that was kind of rude and mean. And maybe that's maybe that's what I see more than hate mail. I don't know if I get if I see a lot of hate mail, quote unquote. I have, by the way, I've had all of that shit and it's it's the best. Um, but what I see in the author world is. uh like they're, they're not, it's not hate so much as it is, gee, I wish you'd do this, or I wish you hadn't done that. Or, you know, dear author, have you ever considered uh, using less swear words? Or it's, it's stuff that they feel like they uh, are being helpful with, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, sometimes I read the e these emails I've seen and I'm like, do they think they're being helpful or is it just passive aggressive or whatever? And that feels like what I see more of. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think... Um... I think half of it is them feeling like they're being helpful. Um, even yeah. though like on our side of things, we're just like, go away, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do think some of them do feel like I'm just, you know, trying to help you out or whatever, but there are, I would say more than half of them are passive aggressive. I think people are really passive aggressive these days. In the um, world. And plus, yeah, and the whole world, the whole freaking world is passive aggressive or and or rude. And I think it's just social media, you know, because of the fact that you don't have to be face to face with somebody. Right. Yeah, well, because you wouldn't say things like that to somebody's face. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I'm referring to was an author who got uh, a follow up email from a signing and the email was pretty rude. And it's yeah, interesting. It was. And it's interesting because. Like, well if you had these feelings about the author, you were standing right in front of them at the signing in clearly you didn't have the guts to say it there. So right. why would but you let me send you an, around? let me send you an email where I don't have to um, deal with your response. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's uh, that is the blessing and the curse of social media, right? You can, you have this incredible connection, but it, also creates this illusion of comfort and, and intimacy that isn't really there. Um, by the way, we assume that everybody who's listening to this is not one of those people and you're all right. fucking awesome. None of you are. And you're our best friends. We love uh, you. We do. And speaking of people we love and things we love, uh, Rain Miller, your old friend, Rain Miller. My old friend, Rain Miller. I really do love Rain. I just want to hug her. Just and want to hug her. She really, we talked about this after we chatted with Rain. She really, really opened up about some, you know, she was very yeah. happy to talk about a lot of stuff in her writing history that I think was painful or stuff she learned. So it's, it's a really intriguing conversation. Um, and so thank you to rain for that. Uh, thank you for listening. That's coming up now. Uh, and when uh, that is done, we will catch up with you on the other side to give you a few more tidbits. Uh, but for the moment, listen to this chat we had with Rain Miller. So today we are talking with Rain Miller, New York Times bestselling author of the Blackstone Affair series, amongst others, um, and lifelong romance reader, we have been led to believe. Uh, she can verify that for us in a moment. Um, but uh, regardless, we are thrilled that she is here with us and friend of Julie's, I might add. So Rain Miller, thank you so much for joining and talking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked, so this is going to be good. Yay! Now, how do you two know each other, just from the romance writing world? Yes, I was a Stalker fan. I no. <laughs> I, I was. I read um, some of Julie's books, and I <clears throat> was just immediately a fan, and I got up the courage to message her one night and ask her for an arc, I believe, of a book that was coming. And we just sort of chatted. And that's how she knew of me. <laughs> and then we bumped into each other at uh, RT, I think it was. Yes. And you took me on this um, magical mystery tour. 
<laughs> I didn't even know where we were going. So, you know, those where, are the best. where was that? <laughs> it was in Dallas at the RT convention. And um, Rain and I were like, hey, let's meet up. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so Rain is like this big deal. Okay. <laughs> I don't think people understand no. that Rain Miller is like this big deal. And so she's walking through the conference and I'm with her. And uh, she just knows everybody, like everybody. And so we're talking to every, and then people appear and they're like, we have to go to this cocktail party. And I'm like, uh, oh, okay. And then Rain's like, come on, Julie, you're coming with me. And I'm like literally wearing a hoodie and ripped jeans and everybody else is dressed up. Wait a minute. This is, oh, this, I know this story. You yeah, told, told me this you. story. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't realize it was, okay, cool. So we all get into, whose car was that? It was, um. I think it was like a a van or something that belonged. It to was Cece, wasn't it? Cece Wood. Oh yeah, it was somebody's car. You're right. I have a foggy so memory. We, we get into Cece's car, and Jody Ellen Malpas is there with her husband, and Christy Bromberg was there with her husband, and like Jody Ellen's husband is like putting on his shoes in the car, and I'm sitting in the back, going, "How did I get here?" Because it's. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand any of it. And then we get off at this hotel, right? And we go into this little hotel, and there's like this major cocktail party going on. It was a little boutique hotel. Yeah, it was pretty. And the legend goes, as I've heard it, that you're there just in your jeans and your hoodie, like with not just wearing a hoodie, but like the hoodie pulled up over your head, like, <laughs> like a sulky teenager. <laughs> <laughs> like at this cocktail party with all these fancy just, writers. I, I didn't know. Like I was totally not supposed to be there. Like it was a special thing for <laughs> important people like Rain right. and Jody <laughs> and Christy. And, and yeah, I wasn't supposed to be there. But it, um, it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun. Yeah, well, it all worked out. You crashed a big party and met a lot of wonderful people. And I think that, that as a quick digression, the title of Julie's autobiography should be, I wasn't supposed to be there. I think that sums up. Love it. Um, so Rain, uh, it is legend has it that you've been reading romance novels almost your whole life since you were like 13 and read Barbara Cartland. Is that true? It is. And I have a fabulous collection of Barbara Cartland uh, paperbacks in my office. Um, oh, wow. So I can look at them all the time. But yes, um, longtime romance reader. I still read it. What was the transition point? When did you go from being romance reader to romance writer? Um, not until 10 years ago, actually. 2009. Um, I was a teacher. I taught first grade public school in California for 23 years. And I really, I really enjoyed and loved my job. But about 10 years ago, my mom got me a subscription to Writer's Digest. And oh, wow. I started reading it, uh, read the articles, and it just sort of like sparked something, you know, like maybe I could write my own stories. And that year in the spring, I had to have a hysterectomy, and I was going to be out of teaching from like April until the next school year. Um, so when I was out recovering and I was home and my kids were at school and my husband was at work all day, um, that's when I started writing my first story. And what was that first story? It was The Muse. It was a historical romance that I did not publish um, for six years. It was the first book that I wrote and um, I just kind of kept it under the bed for a long time um, until I pulled it out and then finally published it after I'd already become known for the contemporary stuff. But yeah, I remember when that came out. So it was, um, you know, it took me a year to write that book and it was sort of like baby steps for me. Like I first started, you know, just writing scenes and that was really fun and I, and I loved doing it and I come home from work and, change out of my work clothes and go right up to my office and just start working on it. It was just, I, I don't think I watched any TV or anything for that year. I was just completely caught up in writing that story. And then the next goal was to see if I could finish an entire book, if I could write a book. 
Um, I have read and heard, you know, that many people start books and rarely finish them. So that was my next goal. And then when I did that, then the next goal was like to try to get it published. And I entered it in some contests and I sent it around, but it got rejected. And so I then started writing another book and I finished that one and submitted it. And that one did get picked up by a small press. I feel like that first book in a lot of ways, you know, it's some of my best work, but you know, I think you, you have to write that first book and make all the mistakes to learn. And I learned so much. So when it was six years later, when it was time to publish that and work it through, I, you know, worked it over pretty good, but I'm still really proud of it. That's fascinating. Did you feel like, uh, I guess here's my question. Did you feel like a romance writer once you started writing or did it take a while to feel like you actually sort of could own that identity? Um, I'd say it was until it wasn't until I, I could own that identity, as you put it, um, until I had published, you know, it was a small press that published me, but I remember, you know, looking at my sales, sales dashboard or whatever. And like, you know, 21 people had bought the book and then I don't know, right. a week or so went right. by. And then one of those people, I guess, messaged me, sent me an email through social media or whatever, and said they really liked my book. And you know, I think for me, I didn't see myself that way until a reader saw me that way. You know, the reader saw sure. me as she's an author, she publishes book. So that's a weird feeling, right? Yeah, it was super weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, these people, these people think I'm real. Maybe I am real. Right? <laughs> yeah, it fully was. I mean, I'm just like this mom and I'm a teacher and you know, just live this normal life and, you know, put my pants on one leg at a time. Do you, do you, uh, do you remember what year that was that you actually published the first one with that small Yeah, press? it was 2011. You know, I started getting. So that's right on the. Go ahead. On the cusp of the, of the indie boom, Absolutely. right? Just before. Um, yeah. I was, so I published that book in uh, May, 2011. And then. I wrote in a third book and that published in January, 2012. So I had written three books at that point. And was that the Blackstone affair? No, that was uh, another historical. I started out writing historical. I mean, that's what I love to read. And I did enjoy reading contemporary romance, but I would have to say I read more historical for pleasure. And so that was my thing. I was going to write historical romances, you know, write sexy ones that, were the kind that I like to read. So got through that year. It was summer, June, and I had signed up for my first kind of like conference thing. And it was called Romcon. And it was in Denver in June mm -hmm. of 2012. And I went and th those were some of my very first fans who had read some of my books were going and, you know, had posted like, I can't wait to meet you. And that was just surreal and it was really exciting for me just to go and meet some of the authors that I had met on Facebook. We're going to meet in person. Way I, I remember like April of that year, April 2012 was when Fifty Shades came out and, you know, the books were in Target and um, I think that's when I read them. And then we went to the conference in June and that was all everyone was talking about. It was a big deal. And I just sort of got motivated to, to try to write a contemporary romance. I had never written one before. I had never written in first person before. My um, historicals are written in third. And so, you know, it was a real motivating conference. Came home, husband and two boys uh, went away for a week to Boy Scout camp. And I was alone. And I was searching cover images one night on Shutterstock and found this image and just got an idea for a story and busted out the first chapter in like 30 minutes, sent it to my friend. She said, you should write this. So I put aside the other book I was starting and wrote Naked, which was the Blackstone Affair, book one. And 
everything kind of went crazy after that. Everything yeah, because that was crazy. actually that was now that because because that was not a self-published thing, right? Wasn't that Simon and Schuster? No, it was, was self-published. Uh, books one and books two were self-published. I oh, okay. didn't even know how to self-publish, but I had a friend, Belinda Boring, who's an author who I'd known on oh, Facebook. Yeah. For a couple of years and then we got to meet at the rom-con conference and she kind of walked me through how to do it on amazon i was you know i was kind of of that group where you know you don't self-publish you do small presses you you know present your work and someone picks you up i you know i had been told don't ever self-publish it's bad it's the worst thing you could do blah 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 and you know keep in mind i'm still teaching I haven't quit my job, even though it's summertime. Oh, um, okay. So, okay. you know, I'm just doing this fun as a side thing. So that book published, Naked published August 25th, 2012. It just, it, a lot of it's just timing, luck, choices that I made with the cover, um, a very uh, striking cover different from what was kind of common at the time, which was like couples on covers, you know, it was just a single image of a woman and it was black and white. It was one of the first black and white covers, um, for romance. Um, the title, you know, I was just trying to get people to stop and look, I mean, if they could just look at it for a minute then maybe they might want to buy yeah, it. Sure. Yeah. So it all worked out for me. And, you know, at the time, like people were just kind of craving more, Contemporary romance, erotic romance, uh, kind of stories like Fifty Shades, um, because that was just blowing up. And so I just kind of hit it at the right, the right moment. Sure. Now, you said one and two were self-published. Does that mean that subsequently yes, it was picked I, up by a major um, at some point? Or am I... Published yeah, the okay. first one. Um, it, made the US, it made USA Today and sold about 150,000 copies and wow. wow, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know, you know, what's good, what's successful or not. I had heard that, you know, 5,000 copies is a decent uh, run for a traditionally published book. This is back then. Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was <laughs> yeah. respectable. So once it started selling so many, I just started getting lots of calls from agencies and in new york and wanting to represent me and it was just kind of just kind of weird like and i knew nothing like you know i didn't know what what's a good what's a good plan what what, what i should have done and i wish i had uh done some things differently but you know you can't unbring it so here we are here we are. At what point did you then say, well, I guess this is what I do now and sh shift from teaching into this full time? Well, um, I was going to try to finish out that school year. Um, this was just the very beginning of the school year, really. And, you know, I didn't, I wanted to finish the year out and just at that point say to my superiors that I would put in my resignation, you know, I was making a lot of money, like six figures, high six figures. Um, so you kind of figure <laughs> if you've made like six times what you've been making. Why, why, oh, is that, why is that more than teaching? You, I'm if kidding. you've made I'm six kidding. times more in a month than what you would have made in a year teaching, it's like, well, I guess I can do this. And, you know, at least I have a cushion, like I've had the successful book so I can write some more and I'll be okay. You know, my husband was working and it wasn't like, you know, the family income was going to go down. So that was my plan. And then the first book was a cliffhanger and people were crazy, rabid, demanding. And I was writing really fast. I published the second book uh, six weeks later and that book it just, it was a weird day. I published it in November, like November 3rd or something. And it, when it debuted at its Amazon rank, you know, Amazon, when it pushes your book live, it doesn't have a rank at first. Yeah. And so its first rank was number two. And I sold wow. like, <laughs> it was like 10,000 copies in 12 hours. 
Um, I didn't have a pre-order. This was before pre-orders wow. or any of that stuff. It was just like you put your book up and it just went. And then um, that book made the New York, it, that made the New York Times and Naked. All in, was this book too? It made the New York Times at a higher number than Naked, but Naked also made the New York Times. They made the New York Times on the same week. Wow. I had this New York agent uh, who had called me before and I had just said I'd keep her number and you never know when I might need her. And I contacted her and she represented me. And within three weeks, she called me. I was picking up my son from school. It was raining in my car waiting for him. And she called and said, I have uh, a deal from Simon & Schuster wants to buy your trilogy, book one, two, and three. And that was for a seven-figure book deal. Was there any, was there, and obviously that's flattering and it's impressive and that's exciting. Was there ever a moment where you thought, ah, I don't know if I want to give up the autonomy that I have and, and the ownership that you have over the series? Was there ever a hesitation or were you like, yep, no, let's do this? Um, I was pretty much, yep, let's do this. <laughs> and that is regret, <laughs> let's just say. Is um, it? We can talk about that more if you want. But um, yeah. yeah, I pretty much said that, said yes, and accepted the deal and came to work the next day, which was a Friday, and had a meeting with my principal. He knew I had been writing. He knew I wrote romance books. He knew I had a pen name. And basically, I left that meeting having resigned my 23-year career as an educator because um, they just felt that it would be in my best interest and the district's best interest to do that because, you know, parents would flip out and right. maybe sue the school district because, you know, here's this woman teaching their six-year-old who's writing these sexy books. And so I did it. I resigned mid-year. Let's talk about this day for a second, because that <laughs> is that is a big day, not just the deal, but the fact that you are leaving your career. And like, I don't know what that meeting was like, but you had to have felt a little bit sad, right? Like I was. I was sad and, you know, it was, you know, kind of just this dichotomy of morals and social ideas that, you know, I could, I was good enough to teach their kid, but not if I'm writing these books. And on the other hand, right. some of the women that, well, I say women, some of the people that might've complained about the fact that I was writing and teaching would have no problem reading those books right. themselves. They just don't want the person writing them to teach their kid. So yeah, there was some of that. And, you know, you go from one day I'm, you know, able to teach these kids to, to, I was never alone in the classroom with the kids. Again, I had to go say goodbye to them when they had a substitute. Wow. That must've been hard. It was just kind of weird. And then, you know, I'm kind of lost mumbling around my house. Like I've got a book to write and I'm home in my pajamas and everyone else is doing all the stuff that I've done for quarter century. It's weird, but you know, you just, that's just how it was for me. That's an interesting thing, thing that you bring up. It's an interesting point, uh, the transitioning from working for someone else, being sort of responsive to being completely self-motivated. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I have a feeling that Julie might on some level too. I mean, certainly Julie made that transition as well. Do you, the, the wandering around in the pajamas thing feels very familiar. Was there a, a place, <laughs> was there a place where you um, were able to settle into um this is no less uh, this is no less industrious an affair. Like at what point did you say, you know what, this is a job. It's just like any other job. In fact, it's it's a deeply meaningful job and and I, it is not a, a wandering around in my uh, pajamas affair. It is something that I get up and do every day. Is that was that a fairly quick transition or was that something that just you had to sort of process that loss for a bit? So I, you know, went from teaching every day and getting up and 
driving to school to I don't have to put on clothes so I can stay in my pajamas and drink coffee and, you know, lounge around. But I didn't really have time to, like, enjoy that for even, like, a day or two. I had my kids, my husband, that still needed care. And um, I also had uh, elderly parents. And that would come into play, like, just a few months later, actually. But um, I had a book to write. They had paid me a lot of money and put a lot of pressure on me. They wanted, you know, a book to perform really well, like Fifty Shades had. And they would say things like that to me. Um, and it freaked me out. So I was basically just paranoid to write a really good book. So that's what I did. I just stayed home and wrote. Didn't really do much or have much of a life. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think anyone who has risen to a level where you have like us who have gone through this self-published a thing, maybe even traditional as well. But it's um, it's anybody who has had it happen like instantaneously, even though it wasn't instantaneously, right? You had been writing for a couple years and like I had been writing for a couple years, but it feels like it happens overnight. And like from one day to the next, you get thrown into this new life so I find that really interesting about like your day where you went to school. Um, I just think that that must have been a really powerful day for you. And then having to deal with all that stuff, like your life just changed, right? Overnight. It did. And I hadn't really gone to anything, um, at no events or anything uh, after Blackstone Affair was written. It was just all online stuff and um, people wanting interviews and uh, in the beginning, lots of agencies and people calling to represent me. And, you know, that is just truly weird. Like I had seen that kind of thing happen in movies and stuff. Yeah. And here it was happening to me. And um, I just, it was a lot, you know, I, the basic thing was I had to write this book and it was, almost kind of scary. Like I'd have those moments, like what the hell have I done? Yeah. And now I'm stuck here and I can't get out. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you, you signed a contract. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, you kind of get used to it, but um, like I said, I didn't have a whole long time to deal with it. That, that uh, book, third book was turned in in beginning of March. Then I went to that big Boston signing that first one. Um, that was in March of 2013 and um, it's kind of like the first big indie signing and I did a couple more things and then by May uh, my mother had a stroke and I had to go help them they lived about 40 40 minutes from me and uh, we dealt with that she got better back home and then within Within like a month of that, my dad fell and needed to be in a therapy rehab. And it became apparent that my mom's stroke had impaired like her ability to really like take care of him and for them to live alone. So then I started the process of moving them to assisted living, uh, which was just like a mile or two from my house. And so that was a lot, you know. Yeah. I was really grateful at that point that I didn't have a job to go to because I could do all of that. That was like taking up all my time. Then within six months of that, my father passed away. And then 13 months after that, my mom passed away. So, you know, a lot of my whole life changed so much. Yeah. So fast. With just all these huge things. Um, right on top of each other. And so, you know, I never really have felt like I've had a time to just sit and react to anything. I'm always just dealing with what's in front of me. I, I Yeah, I think I, I think everybody can relate to that. Maybe not on this level because these are huge things. But, but um, you just have to do it. You don't have a choice. Yeah. It's like I'm doing this today and tomorrow I'll deal with that other thing. And can I just say this about about your publisher wanting that book in March when you published book two in November 
Like what? <laughs> they were, um, you know, I think a lot of publishers at that time, they were buying out Indies. I truly believe this. I hope this doesn't like cause some big blowback, but I hope it does. Let's get into it. <laughs> I truly believe that in those early months coming right off of 50 shades, the big publishers were very, very, very concerned about these indies like me who were selling a lot of books on their own. And I really oh, I think, think it's that, a massive threat. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they were in the beginning, they bought up a bunch of indies all at the same they time yeah. and they paid them like a million dollars or more to buy their rights. And I think they were trying in a way to kind of stem the indie revolution. They thought they could buy these people and bring them on board to traditional publishing. It could kind of stem this like wildfire, but there were just too many people coming and too many. Books. Yeah. It was like a flood. There was so, like, yeah, they couldn't do it, but I think that's what they did with me. I really do. And then their idea, their marketing plan was to take my books that I had sold for two ninety nine, which naked is only like naked is like 45,000 words. It's a novella. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And what did they price it at? Seven ninety nine. Right. Sure. And then, you know, they just didn't understand. Like, you can't, you can't have a successful book that's been indie, indie successful. Two ninety nine. Slap a seven ninety nine price on it, and sell at the same level. Yeah. They just they didn't understand that. I I don't know that they understand it now. So presumably, presumably they took a bit of a bath on this whole thing. I mean, they gave but you they, a fairly they really did because, it, you know, I've sold a lot of books for them. And so, and then the other way is they, they wrote the contracts as um, joint accounted. So that big payout they paid you is all they were ever going to pay you. But yet they'll make money off your books forever. I'll never earn out. Because two of the books. So is that, how, how long does that, how long does that contract last? Right. Forever. Um, I asked my forever. Really? Wow. Um, wow. It, as long as the book's in print somewhere. Um, and with digital printing, I mean, you know, the yeah. contracts, I just, I wish I'd never done it. I learned a lot. I, I met people later. Uh, I met a person six months later who told me the critical bit of news. I wish I'd known. Um, for an indie, but at the time, you should never accept an advance unless it's more than what you would make in two years self-publishing that book yourself. Hmm. And I had already made I had already made like three quarters of what they paid me. Yeah, in a few months. So I just didn't know. It's an interesting calculus, Julie. Have you ever heard anything like that? I think I have heard that. Um, I never got any offers, so it was never a big deal for me. <laughs> but it's um, but it's scary to think of giving up your rights forever because back then you didn't realize that you could keep making money off of these intellectual properties forever. Correct. Right. Like that was. Hard to understand back then. You thought, oh, well, it's going to go away. Like, it's going to do good for a few months and it's going to go away. But that's not really how it works. No. And, you know, they still sell. My book still sells uh, remarkably well for as old as it is. Um, it's been published in, like, 20 different languages. You know, I, I, I probably would have made, like, five times what they've paid me over these years by having the rights, being able to put it on sale, bundle them, uh, you know, really promo it before uh, the next book came out. And, you know, all the things that people do to promote their books as indies, um, I wasn't able to do any of that. Um, I remember when Fifty Shades movie, like the first one was coming out, I begged them to put the book one on sale and they wouldn't do it. So I feel like there was some level of, you know, wanting to keep it at a level where the books will never earn out. 
and they never have to pay you royalties. Because when the books are joint accounted, one, two, and three, that means you would have to earn out on all three books sure. before you get money on any of them. So, and the other thing that people don't know, it's really, really, really difficult to earn out on books that were previously self-published. Books one and two were already indie pubbed. Um, so they didn't get that big rush of new purchases, right. like when you release a book. So books one and two would likely never earn out. So since book one and two would never earn out, even if book three earned out, they wouldn't have to pay me royalties on it. So that's how that works. So it's, it's very calculated. They know, you know, it would be next to impossible to earn out on this book, on these three books. And so they'll never have to pay me anything, but yet they still sell it and they still make money. It seems incredibly unfair at the very least and a little bit maybe dishonest. Um, yeah, it's just sucks. Yeah. I mean, it just is what it is. So I wrote a fourth book and I self-published that and you know, I have plans to write a fifth at some point. I mean, I, I don't like to age my characters. My characters have just kind of stopped exactly where they were when the last book ended. Um, Ugh, I wish that were life. That's I how I <laughs> operate with my characters. So I feel like if, if I wanted to, I could just keep Ethan Blackstone going perpetually. And he doesn't really, you know, he just kind of stays at that. James Bond, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. that's how I will, uh, you know, preserve him. But yeah, so I, I certainly can continue. Like I'm my three book deal with Simon Schuster is over and I still write character uh, Ethan Blackstone as much as I want, but yeah, I'll never get those three books back unless they go out of business or something happens. I don't know. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, you've covered kind of a topic that Julie <laughs> Julie has a question she likes to ask when we come to sort of the the end of these conversations, and uh, uh, I feel like we've covered this pretty comprehensively. <laughs> but um, but I but I want but I want I want Julie to ask it anyway because I'm wondering if there's anything else beyond what's obviously on the on the face of of the answer to this question that you might uh, that you might have thoughts about. Julie, do you want to throw that out there? I, I do want to ask that question, but I have one more question. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, let's get into it. So my other question is, and this goes back to early in the interview, um, what, how, how did you decide to write book two, Rain? Like when you said, okay, you put the muse out there and then you're, and then you just wrote another book. Like what was that process like deciding how to write book two? Um, I, I think I was just at that, that wonderful magical time. I think in a writer's career where, you know, you just live and breathe telling these stories. Like if you can't write it down, like you're going to climb out of your skin or something. Right. Um, and that's how I was. And I just got an idea for another story. And it just started with this man who's in church and he's sitting behind this woman that he's just obsessing over and he smells her perfume and he looks at the back of her neck and I just had this idea and then I just started writing the story and I love the way that book starts, but it's, it's just, it was just in me at the time. And for that matter, when I wrote naked, that book just flowed out of me. Like there was no writer's block or anything. And you know, that's harder for me now. I really have to push to get into that zone. I don't, I don't know if that's all the like kind of sad things that have happened since or um, just the fact that, you know, I'm not doing it for fun. I'm now doing it for, you know, my living. And yeah. I think that takes away some of that magic. But um, yeah, I just wanted to write. That's all I really wanted to do. Like I said, I don't even think I watched TV or anything for a couple of years, except for SpongeBob. Yeah, I think <laughs> because my kids were well, on I mean, the other side. Watch SpongeBob. I can tell you what episode of SpongeBob within a couple of minutes just by listening. That's so funny. You know, just uh, just uh, speaking to something that you were talking about earlier, by the way, the idea of having the, the administration suggesting that perhaps there would be an issue with someone writing these books and teaching first graders. 
you know, I, I don't know if you're aware, like when Julie and I started this, I was actually on a Disney channel TV series yeah. uh, and I was oh, like yeah. waiting and waiting for them to fire me. And, uh, and, but the reason I think of it now is that Tom, the voice of SpongeBob, I happen to know is currently doing a filthy, filthy cartoon for Netflix. Oh <laughs> and and uh, like, filthy. And um and I I'm I'm sort of wondering if I you know it's I haven't asked anybody, but I'm like, I don't know, will he use a pseudonym? Will he whatever? But the answer is probably not because SpongeBob has passed its peak or whatever. But and people, I wouldn't even know his name. Well, I think that's probably true yeah. too. But I'm sort of I have this giddy, like uh, gleeful little smirk on my face when I think about like the grown up kids who watch SpongeBob <laughs> now transitioning over and watching this filthy, <laughs> filthy cartoon. Um, you know what else is really you know what else is really interesting? So Rain was a first grade teacher. You were on a Disney Channel, and I used to write textbooks for kids. Yes, that's, that's right. That's so right. Like, how did we get here? <laughs> All writing this smut. Someone should do a study on what it is that drives people into this world. Um, I don't know. Okay, my question um, is, and I think I know a little bit the answer, like Jonathan said, <laughs> but if you knew then what you know now, what would you do different? Oh, boy. I would have not ever sold any books to anybody. And I'm talking about the two historicals that went to the small press. I would have. Oh, really? Wow. They okay. ended up suing me. What? No kidding. Oh, yes. Um, six weeks after I buried my mom, we were in Hawaii. My son was getting ready to go away to college and leave the nest. And so we were on a family vacation in the summer. And I got served a lawsuit by that small press for breaching contract by writing sequels. And basically, they were claiming that all of my sequels, all my contemporary books, Blackstone Affair, were sequels of the historicals because I had some ancestors and some names and some places that were the same. And so that sucked. I had well, that is just a dick, a dick move on their part. Like there is no question about that. And it's called something. It's called patent trolling in the legal. Uh, Okay. okay, like let's use an example of like a model who who did nude photos, say. And so, you know, the photographer's taken like a billion photos of different people. And then that model becomes like famous later for something. And, you know, they have these pictures and they want to exploit it. So it's kind of the same thing. I found out that I had New York Times, I had signed it major book deal and so they just poured over all of my works and um claimed that i had breached contract and sued me and that was like two years of legal wrangling and paying lawyers at seven hundred dollars an hour um so when someone sues you, you you either fight it or you pay up so you know it's not fun to be sued so it costs a lot of money um, a lot of emotional wear and tear on me, but, um, you know, I ended up coming out of that. I, I won that. I, you know, my books were declared not sequels. I did not have to pay them any money, but, you know, I did have all those legal costs and, you know, it just sucked. So, yeah, I would have never sold even yeah. any book to anybody. I would have kept all of my Lesson learned, right? Like, huh. Your intellectual property is yours to use and benefit from forever. So, this has been so fascinating to me. Um, no, truly, uh, this conversation and writ large, this being with Julie and hearing conversations like this over the last couple of years, uh, because I'm from such a traditional model uh, of content creation and entertainment that the, the the path is very clear. You go through your agents, you put a deal together, you get screwed, you get into, you do the next thing. And that's kind of how it works. And this, the power, the self-empowerment that exists in this world of indie uh, is so fascinating to me and so far supersedes any downsides that any of the bullshit stigma that comes with, you know, or I don't think it even exists either. anymore. I but don't think it does either. As you were talking earlier, the stigma initially with being independently published was sort of a, a stench that I guess like clung to the the idea. And now it seems like anyone who's not doing it is kind of, you know, pursuing a fool's errand. Absolutely. I mean, and it comes down to it, like what, 
yes, we write because we love to do it. If we didn't love to do it, I don't know of anyone who would spend this time, you know, bleeding all over the page. But, you know, mm. if you can make money doing that, um, then the only numbers that are important are, you know, the numbers that are on your 1099. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right, right. You're right. You're right. I don't Ugh. care. I, I appreciate all I've been given and all that I've achieved. And I feel very blessed that, you know, something I did was right at the right time. Um, but, you know, the idea that, you know, you need to share it with agents and publishers, it's just not a thing anymore, especially with romance. I truly believe that romance is, is an era that is completely over for traditional publish publishing. Yeah, there's almost no reason to have a publisher in romance because they can't do anything for you um, that you cannot do better. They can't sell it. Yeah, uh, really. They can't uh, promote it. They market it. Yeah, they can't. They can't reach the readers either. They just they have no clue where readers that. are. The person-to-person engagement that I've seen gives the writer a much better understanding of what they're writing and who their audience is than a publisher can have, it feels like. And I think that's what publishers were doing in the beginning when they scooped up people like me. I remember uh, them wanting a conference call. And, you know, we're talking higher-ups in Simon & Schuster, Atria's division, wanting to know precisely what I did the week of September 2012 to sell so many right. books. Right. You're like, I put us, it on sale. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't do it. Um, yeah. They just, they didn't have a clue. They didn't know what was going on. And I think they were just, their first instinct was to deny. And, you know, it just was coming. It was a giant wave that was coming and it wasn't going to slow down. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to, cre- to ride that wave and crest it and that you're still going. And what do you have coming out next? What should we be looking out for in the near future? Well, I started a pen name a year ago and kind of collaborating with my husband who's a super sports fan and started with sports romances, hockey to start. And so my next book coming out is a uh, book two in that hockey series and I have a baseball book coming in that. Um, and it's just been super fun. I, I just like it. It's it's definitely um, lighter, just boy meets girl, sports romance. It's not as intense as my normal. But I like having that option to, to do that as well as the other. And that pen name is uh, Britt DeMille. But it's on my bio. Like, I'm not hiding it or anything. I just... I didn't want to put the Rain Miller on the sports books because they're very different, feel very different than the regular Rain Miller contemporary romance. So I didn't want, I just didn't want people to, to read it and say, well, this isn't like Blackstone Affair, so I, I hate it. So I wrote it first. Sure, Julie. I wrote it first, uh, yeah. kept it incognito, and then after the book came out and it was well-received and people liked it, then I felt confident to say, well, this is me. But I, I just couldn't do it that way from the beginning. That, that's just how I needed to do it. I'm kind of doing the same thing right now. I'm um, getting ready to release some science mm-hmm. fiction romance um, because I really, really like the science fiction stuff. And I, I have a pen name as well. And it's not going to be hidden or anything. I just don't want the J. Huss readers to pick it up. Exactly. And say, well... This isn't three, two, one, right? Because it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know, and that's another thing is like having an iconic character like Ethan that everybody knows and has this idea of. It's kind of hard to like get past that. I mean, you have to write other characters and heroes, and yeah. people would just like, well, this is an Ethan, so I don't like him as much. But you know, you know, that's kind of been like one negative, I'd say, but. You can't do anything about that. People love him. They love him. They love him. Um, Rain Miller, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We love you as much as they love Ethan. So thank you for being here with us. 
Well, thank you. It was really fun. I enjoyed it very, very much. Thanks for inviting me. I wish that you had been, I wish you had been my first grade teacher. I just want to say that out loud. Oh, I love. I would have learned a lot. Those little kids are so cute, and my favorites were the like little ADHD wild boys. Oh, we would have gotten along great. <laughs> you know, I could read right through. They had such charm in their little faces while they're being little shits, and you're just oh, like, yeah. oh man, someone's going to be in big trouble at some point. Yeah, there's clearly a. I, I knew I liked you. For a um, Rain, thank you so much. Uh, everyone, please, uh, let's all give a hand to Rain Miller. Thank you, Rain. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Rain Miller. Um, she's great and what i really like about rain particularly is that she's extraordinarily thoughtful and forthright at the same time and i I we talked about this after we chatted with her you could tell how much she loved being uh, a school teacher too yeah and that's what i got too and i love that i love that she genuinely loves educating and um that finds its way into her writing and Thank you so much, Rain, if you are listening, for having come on and chatted with us. We really appreciate it. Um, we do, and we love you, Rain. We love you, Rain. And our next conversation will be two weeks from today with the gorgeous Kathleen Brooks. Kathleen Brooks, who uh, could not be more charming. and who She was charming. So charming. And discovered that we have uh, some stuff in common. So listen in to find out more about that. Um, in the meantime, for the next couple weeks till we see you again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of our world. Uh, if this is your first time listening, please hit subscribe. Uh, visit the website at lovenotespodcast.com. And uh, Love Notes is produced by Emily Durr, J.A. Huss, and Jonathan McLean. I'm Jonathan McLean, in case there was any confusion. Uh <laughs> Executive producer is Oh My Audiobooks, an imprint of Podium Publishing. Our editing is by Troy Odie. Our theme song and our music is by Brandon Costello. And finally, the art on our website was made by J. Ann Huss. Um, <laughs> trying out new pen names. Um, I know, you always do. <laughs> check it out at lovenotespodcast.com. That's lovenotespodcast.com. Support for Love Notes comes from Oh My Audiobooks where the pleasure is all yours. And until next time, go fuck yourself. Bye. Oh, that's nicer. <laughs> Bye. That's what we're going to